0: Good morning, church family. How are we doing today? All right, I'm gonna ask that one more time. I said, How are we doing today? Amen. Amen. Hey, listen, last night we had a prayer and worship service here that was so incredibly awesome. And so, those of you who were here last night, uh, you know it was incredible, it was powerful. The time of prayer and worship was just, man, it was amazing. And even One thing that I loved even more than just participating in that and being a part of it um, was seeing how many people stuck around afterwards to just pray for each other and and talk to each other and share all those biblical one another's. It was a a beautiful thing. I have another uh, cool update for you guys. As you know, in the Christmas season, we were doing a uh, charitable initiative, so to speak, practicing generosity, godly generosity, called Give a Goat where we were hoping to raise some money to buy some goats for families in need around the world that would give uh, families in third world countries the opportunity to have a means to provide for themselves. And so we did that initiative throughout the month of December, and I'm excited to say we raised $8,895, which equals 104 goats, more so, which equals 104 families in third world countries that will now have a means to feed their family and also to start earning income. So praise God for that. Thank you for your generosity. That's a wonderful and beautiful thing because it's really easy for us in America um, to just navel gaze and look at ourselves and get caught up in our own world and our own life and forget that there are people around the world who are suffering greatly and that God has given us so much. And that uh, with that, uh, to pull a, a, a Uncle Ben from Spider-Man with great, uh, what does he say? With great power comes great responsibility. And God has given us much and, and therefore we should be generous with what God has given us. Today we are going to talk about cost versus reward. If you're new here, if this is your first time, if you're a visitor, our church family right now is doing something called Year of the Bible where from January through December, we're going Genesis through Revelation. We have a reading plan that our church family is reading. So during the week, everyone's reading an allotted uh, portion of Scripture. And then community groups that want to participate have resources where they can talk about what we read as well. And then I get up here on Sunday, our ta- our team, uh, we talk about what our church family read. And so we're in the book of Genesis right now still. And we have talked about everything leading up through last week was Abraham and the test that he faced as God commanded him to go up the mountain with his beloved son to offer him as a sacrifice. And it's quite profound, some of the things we see there in Scripture, primarily that the whole point of that chapter that was highlighted through the Hebrew ancient literature mechanism called chiasm, pointing to the point of that story is that God will provide for himself the lamb for the sacrifice, which is a a profound declaration pointing forward to Jesus Christ, the lamb that God provided for himself as the sacrifice for our sins, which is wonderful news. Today, we continue on, as we've read over the last week, Genesis 25 through, I think it was like 37 or something like that. And we begin to transition from Father Abraham proceeding on through the lineage of this family, remembering this whole time we want to pay attention to and be sensitive to the thread of the meta-narrative of Scripture that Genesis to Revelation is one story. And it's not, let's have this little random story about Abraham, and now we've got this little random story about Isaac with moral lessons that we can draw from them. Are there moral lessons we can draw from them? Sure. And we're going to talk about some of those things today. But we need to pay attention to the fact that this is the continuation of the story that began in Genesis with the fall of man. And God saying, I will have the seed of the woman that will crush the serpent Head talking, prophesying about the Savior that would come, and every generation after that is looking for that Messiah who would come. And God chooses the man, Abraham, Abram at the time, to say, You are the man through which I will do this, you and your family. I will bless you and make you a blessing, and all nations of the earth or all families of the earth will be blessed. By you. So, through Abraham's family, through his lineage, through his descendants, would eventually come this promised Messiah who would make way for all nations of the earth to be blessed. And that blessing we saw in Galatians 3 is that we are made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ. The same way that Abraham was counted as righteous. By his faith, believing in what God said. So today, we pick up in Genesis chapter 25, the, we go from Abraham to the stories of Isaac. And honestly, Isaac's portion is pretty small because the main point of Isaac in the story is that he was the promised seed through which this great nation would come. And so we have very brief portions about Isaac, and then we move on to Isaac's twin boys. Jacob and Esau, or Esau and Jacob, if you go in order of birth. So we're going to pick up here in verse 19, reading today. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. Man, that's a mouthful of a sentence. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? She's saying, what's going on here, Lord? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. And the older shall serve the younger. This is counterintuitive to the culture, the era of that day. The concept, the idea that the older would serve the younger. The birthright in this day was a big deal. To be the firstborn meant that you got a double portion of the inheritance compared to what all the other brothers and sisters got where all the other brothers would have got one portion of the inheritance. If you were the firstborn, you would have received a double portion. And then you would have become the heir, the ruler of that, that family. And if that family continued to grow into a nation, you would become the leader, the patriarch, the ruler of that family. So that birthright is a big deal that would have been bestowed on, of course, the firstborn. So God telling uh, Rebekah that the older will serve the younger, is really counterintuitive and peculiar. Let's continue reading verse 24. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau, which literally meant red. Afterwards, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. His name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. Yes, Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful, skillful hunter, a man of the field. This is the, basically saying he was a, a man's man. While Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac, this is important to notice here. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. But Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. Pay attention to that word too, exhausted. That doesn't mean about to die. It means exhausted. So he was exhausted. Verse 30, and Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that stew for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. That's a a Hebrew word play. Edom sounds a whole lot like red uh, compared to the Hebrew word for red. And so therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. And Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Now let's remember a few things. We have recently looked at the story of Abraham, where God looks at faithful Abraham and says, all right, you believed me. I count you as righteous. And because of that, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to bring a nation through you that I will outnumber the stars and the sand with your family, so to speak, that great nation that will come through you. The promise of God given to Abraham was passed on to his descendants, to Isaac. And that would go on through generations down through his descendants. The promise of of the eternal God is at stake here in the birthright that would be given. And so it's important that we are aware of that and consider that when we read this story where we see Esau come in from hunting and he's hungry and he's exhausted and he sees Jacob has cooked some stew. And looking at the stew, hungry and exhausted, is like, bro, Give me some of that. And Jacob says, Okay, give me your birthright and I'll give you some stew. Now, what should Jacob or Esau have done? Esau should have responded, (laughs) Jacob, bro, you're uh, you're always joking, man. I love, man, you're so funny. That's why I love you, little bro. You got such a sense of humor, like like the birthright. Like I, the birthright for a bowl of stew. <laughs> oh, man, that's good. That's good. That's good. You guys, he it, it wants me to give him the, the birthright. Yeah, yeah th- for a bowl of stew. <laughs> I know, right? I- You gotta be a comedian, bro. You gotta pursue that career because that's some funny junk right there. Oh man, that's funny. No. Oh, oh, you're serious? Have you lost your mind? Cause I'll help you find it. The birthright for a bowl of stew. Bro, get out of here. No, I'm exhausted. I'm tired, but please. What we see here is the indifference, the passivity, the carelessness with which Esau treated the promise of God that would have been coming through him. How careless, how reckless he was at the promise of God. God obviously knowing all things and God ordaining a plan told Sarah, or I'm sorry, Rebekah, yeah, your brothers, who are these boys, these two nations in your womb. We saw that Esau was called Edom at one point. If you follow on in the story of Genesis, we're going to start seeing a country that's called the Edomites, who become a thorn in the flesh to the nation of Israel. This country that is bitter and angry at Israel because of everything that happened here. And if you did the reading throughout this week, you'll see a few chapters from now. This guy, Jacob, is the one who wrestles with God. Metaphorically, he's wrestling with an angel. I don't have time to get into the theology of all that today, but he's wrestling with this angel. That angel pops his hip out of socket, blesses him, um, and that's when his name is changed to Israel. And so Jacob becomes Israel because he is the promised one, that is the, that this seed, this line is going to continue through. Esau should have said, man, you're out of your mind. I'm not going to sell you my birthright for a bowl of soup. Now give me some of that. Be a good brother. And uh, we'll pretend that this never happened because you're being ridiculous right now. But instead, he treats the promise of God as if it's not important. And as if his momentary hunger and the weakness of his flesh, satisfying that hunger was more important than the eternal promises of God. Let's look real quick as we've been doing this a lot, flipping back and forth. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 12. Remembering Hebrews chapter 11 is the account of all the patriarchs of the faith You know, Abraham or it talks about uh, Noah and then it goes on to talk about Abraham and it talks about Isaac and it talks about Jacob and so many others throughout the generations of how they lived faithful, living by faith, looking forward to a city that was not yet here, a heavenly city, recognizing they were pilgrims in this world. The point of Hebrews chapter 11 is to say, look at all these faithful patriarchs in the Old Testament, how they lived by faith, recognizing that this world did not hold the answers of what they were looking for. They were looking for a city, a heavenly home that is not here and now. And they they therefore lived by faith. If we look at Hebrews chapter 12, though, we're going to read something different about Esau. Esau chapter, or I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 12, it says this, Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. The author of Hebrews is trying to encourage the believers. And make straight the paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. If you've got any bitterness in your heart towards another believer, this ought to red flag you big time right now. Verse 16, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy, hey, 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 like Esau. Saying unholy like Esau. Who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Let's think for a second about this. We just read this passage where the author of Hebrews is encouraging believers to live holy. Strengthen your knees and live holy before God. Don't let a root of bitterness set in your heart, which can be poisonous for us. And then he goes on to say, nor live sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. And if you consider the lists of the sins that are kind of in there, they're all things that people do and participate in when they are caught up in the desires of the moment in their flesh. No one who commits unfaithfulness in their marriage does it because they've been just Wanting and longing and desiring for it and planning for it without experiencing the weakness of that moment. Everyone has to wrestle with what that cost is. And you think about it, someone who is unfaithful in a moment like that is someone who in that moment is going, I would rather have the pleasures of this moment than everything that it's going to cost if I partake and satisfy the desires of my flesh right now. That's why he's saying, nor be partakers of sexual immorality or unholy like Esau. And he expounds by saying, who sold? He was unholy because he sold his birthright for a single meal. For a single meal, he was willing to give up so much for so little. One thing this helps us see is how dangerous our weakness can be in the moment of the desires of the flesh. We can be willing to give up so much in order to gain so little. This is why scripture teaches that sin is pleasurable or fun for a season. But swiftly it's followed by death. That in that moment, it looks desirable. Think about Adam and Eve in the garden, that in that moment, they saw the fruit and they believed the lie and they looked at it and said, yeah, it does look good. And it does look like it would be satisfying to eat. And it does look desirable, this idea of having that knowledge and that those desires in that moment, that flesh weakness, caused them to give up so much for that momentary transaction. And if we step back and we look at our lives and we think about what are the bad decisions we've made? What are, the, what are the moments of weakness of flesh where we have done things we knew were wrong? We could all sit here and nod our head and go, yeah. Those are moments where I was just in that moment of weakness, desiring what my flesh desired more than what I know is true and eternal. Remember, this is coming right after Hebrews chapter 11. Esau here in chapter 12 is being contrasted by all those patriarchs who were faithful to God and lived by faith because they were looking forward To a city that was not here yet, a heavenly city. All those people in Hebrews 11 were faithful to God because they were not looking in the here and now for the answers they were looking for. They were longing for promises that would be fulfilled in the next life. Now listen, don't don't misconstrue what I'm saying here. There are plenty of promises. There are plenty of ways in which we see, feel, and know the promises of God here and now in this life. Like the indwelling presence of God. The Holy Spirit living inside of us is something God has made available to us here and now. And that is a beautiful, wonderful, priceless thing but there are many promises from God that we look forward to. And we stumble in this life when we, like Esau, take our eyes off of the promises of God that would outlast his lifetime, meaning the generations and the nation that would come beyond him. When we take our eyes off of who God is and what God has promised long-term beyond us here and now in this life, we get caught up in the weakness of our flesh, and what we want in the moment. There's a, a, a new movie out lately um, that, that my girls are enjoying, and it's driving me nuts because I'm so sick of hearing about how we don't talk about Bruno. And there's a, a song in there where this one girl, the whole theme of the movie is that uh, there's a domineering, oppressive grandma and all of the family has this stress because the grandma has placed these expectations on the family and everyone's stressing out before, but because of the idea of trying to measure up to all the expectations that are on them, which also, by the way, is the plot of every Disney movie that has ever come out, it seems. like I'm like waiting for the movie that will come out where the child wants something bad and the parents advise them against that and the child either does that and learns that the consequences are dire by disobeying or that they recognize that their parents were right and they don't do that, but it seems like they're only capable of making movies where the parents are idiots and the parents are wrong, and if the child just disobeys their parents and follows their heart, then the parents will come around and recognize, oh, I was wrong. Thank you, Disney. (laughs) Also, just pay attention to the fact that these movies are trying to teach your kids things. And so it's important, we, we let our daughters enjoy that entertainment, but we follow it up with conversations and go, now what are, what are they trying to teach us here? That's a tangent, that's not the point of the sermon today. Where was I going? There's a song in that movie where this one girl has been trying to tote the line of the family expectations and she starts singing this, what would it be like, what would it be like if I just lived in the moment? And is that not the refrain of our culture? Just just live in the moment in the here and now. Do what makes you happy. Be, Be what you feel is right. Follow your heart. Follow your arrow. Whatever kind of metaphors they throw out today that are just basically telling us, do what you feel. Do what you think is right. Follow your heart. And scripture is saying, no! That is damning ideology. The word of God declares for us, Don't live for the moment now. Live for what is to come. Look at the promises of God about what will yet come and resist what you want by your flesh in the moment right now. Because when we just say yes to the momentary desires of our flesh, destruction is the result. This is why scripture teaches us over and over that we have to take up our cross. Deny ourselves to follow Christ. It doesn't say if anyone wants to come after me, let them just do what they feel in the moment. Jesus makes it pretty dang clear that if you want to follow me, it's going to be hard. To people who come up to Jesus, they're like, Jesus, we want to follow you too. But hey, could you pause for a moment? Because my dad just died and I need to go bury him. I'm sure you understand that, right? Can I come and follow you if you just let me go? And Jesus says to him, let the dead bury the dead. If you want to follow me, come on. And we're going, dang, Jesus, like that's, that's a little insensitive. There's, there's people who are trying to follow Jesus. And he's telling them, it's like he's trying to talk them out of following him. And he says, Hey, you want to follow me? Listen. Foxes have their holes, birds have their nests, etc. Son of Man doesn't even have a place to lay, lay, blah, blah, excuse me lay his head. He's basically telling them, are you sure you want to follow me? Because it's going to be hard. And in America especially, American Christianity at large is follow Jesus and everything's going to be wonderful. And listen, it will be wonderful. But not the way the world wants you to think it would be wonderful. There is nothing more wonderful than having the presence of God, the Holy Spirit, indwelling you as a human being. There's nothing more wonderful than that. There's nothing more wonderful than having the holy and righteous judge of all creation wipe out your sins by the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. There's nothing more wonderful all the exceedingly precious promises that scripture has given us. All things pertaining to life and godliness for the believer today. But this idea that we are to just live in the moment. And there can be shades of truth, and that's where we have to be so careful about these statements that are true-ish or have hints or shades of truth to them because absolutely we do as believers and as those who are on the, uh, this earth with the ministry of reconciliation, meaning those who have been reconciled to God, where we look at the relationships God has given us, the influence he's given us, where we are in the moment going, Lord, how do you want to use me right now? Like if you want to gospel live in the moment, it looks a lot more like that. It looks a lot less like, what do I feel right now? And what do I want right now? And it looks a lot more like, Lord, what do you want right now? A lot less like, what are my feelings telling me that would make me happy? And a lot more like, what does the word of God tell me that will answer my deepest longings and fulfillments, my deepest desires? A lot less like, what does my flesh tell me that will make me happy and satisfy me? And a lot more like, what does God still have me here for? A lot less like, hey, this is a fun relationship. Let's just be jolly and eat, drink and be merry. And a lot more like, how could God use me to reach these people? What weight does God want to use me? And if we're not careful, this is why Jesus told his disciples, guys, pray, pray, because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Let's turn really quick to Galatians chapter five, not too far away from, from Hebrews in the New Testament. Galatians chapter five is a pretty famous passage where we talk about the fruit of the Spirit. I want to read the whole context there, Galatians 5, 16 through 24. It says this, but I say, walk in the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And he's saying we're, we're led by the Spirit of God, where God changes our heart to where we want to live righteously. We want to live holy. We want the Word of God. We want prayer. We want communion with God. We want communion with one another. And we don't need the, the rules telling us, you better, is what he's saying right there. Verse 19, now the works of the flesh are evident, Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Yikes. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That list ought to make us go, okay, am I finding myself in there anywhere? Verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit, meaning if the Holy Spirit is in your life, you have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, I mix those, and self-control against such there is no law. Meaning, if the Holy Spirit's in your life and producing this kind of fruit in your life, you don't need laws telling you don't do the bad things because the Holy Spirit will be causing in you a heart after God, a heart that wants to do righteousness. And here we go, continuing on, verse 24. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And so I think we all need to be asking ourselves, what is the Lord requiring of me? What in my life, what are areas where I'm letting the flesh rule? Is it the snooze button? Where I'm letting the flesh rule, I've been guilty many times of that, and the Lord's been dealing with me about that lately. Is it our inability to say, I don't need to eat more? Gluttony is a sin that Christians don't like to talk about. There's other ones that we like to parade as the the scarlet letters, but there's ones like gluttony and greed that we're really okay with. Gossip is the one that we're really okay with. And so the, the scripture here is saying That we need to evaluate ourselves and go which list does it feel like I'm more in? Is the Holy Spirit at work to where I am a person who is loving who has joy, who has peace and has kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control? Because the Christian those who are in Christ or belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions. And so if we're not This is why, you know, we just had 21 days of prayer that concluded. And in that 21 days of prayer, I encouraged everyone to be fasting different things and choosing to give up something that would be difficult for you to give up. Fasting is so powerful, especially if you're fasting food. Because fasting is an intentional decision to acknowledge what your body is screaming at you and going, no. And food is such a great version of fasting because your body is so used to food and we actually need food. And it's something where when we neglect food, our body's going, Hey, what are you doing? I need food. And when we choose to go, No, we're practicing crucifying our flesh, resisting the desires and the urges of our flesh that can even be good desires. And replacing them by feeding our spirits. Because guys, what this chapter tells us in Galatians 5, there is a war between the flesh and the spirit. And let me ask you, if you put two dogs in a cage and you fed one for five days and you didn't feed one for another five days and you had them fight, which dog wins? The one that's been fed. And so many of our struggles in our life is because our spiritual feeding is an hour on Sunday morning. This is why I wanted to do the year of the Bible, to get our church family into the word of God, to feed their spirit, where their spirit would grow and be stronger so that when these fleshful temptations would come, our spirit would go, no. Being led by the spirit of God and not by the flesh. Like Esau was in that moment where he was willing to discard the birthright and the promises of God for some lentil soup. I mean, come on. At least let it be like sausage and corn chowder or something. His indifference, if Jacob was brutal in what he was asking, Esau was indifferent. Notice that Hebrews chapter 12 doesn't say that Jacob supplanted his brother. But it says, so Esau, despite his birthright, in Hebrews chapter 12, it shares the standpoint presenting this flippant Esau. As the antithesis of all the pilgrims we saw in Hebrews chapter, chapter 11. When we lose sight of God's plans and God's purposes, we give way to the passions of our flesh. If we went to Mark chapter 8, we would see Jesus talking to a crowd of people where he says, What, what is it if you gain the whole world and lose your soul? There's so many things in this life that we're grasping at, trying to gain, that we're giving all of our energy, all of our focus to. And Jesus is declaring, what what good is it? What profit is it? And I'll just flip there real quick. Mark chapter 8, because the word of God is more powerful than my paraphrasing. We're almost done. Mark chapter 8, verse 34. And calling to the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Does that sound like follow your heart? Does that sound like look out for number one? Does that sound like take care of yourself first? Does that sound like follow your dreams Does that sound like all the things that our society has painted as the mantras and drives of life? Deny yourself. If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. We have to understand, to the people that Jesus is talking to that day, he's saying, take up your brutal instrument of torture and execution and follow me. Like to us, crosses are the little things that dangle around our neck and maybe on our ears, and we have them decorative on our walls. To this culture this is the most brutal means of death that was reserved for political disruptance that they wanted to make a display out of these people by putting them through the most brutal excruciating painful death that they had in that day and Jesus is saying take that up and follow me Deny yourself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed. When he comes in the glory of his father with his holy angels. man, I wanted to get to the whole Genesis chapter 27, the whole deception story there of how then Jacob stole the birthright and how actually all four characters in there were sinful. But we're not going to be able to get there today. One thing that is also abundantly clear throughout Genesis, if you haven't noticed it yet is that God will bring his plans and purposes to pass despite the schemes of men. God will bring his plans to pass despite the schemes of men. When I wanted you to see earlier that Isaac loved Esau and Rebekah loved Jacob, and we see that Isaac, listen, Isaac would have known about what God told Sarah. Otherwise, it wouldn't have been passed on through oral tradition and brought into the stories that have been canonized as scripture. Isaac would have known that God told Rebekah, hey, the younger's gonna serve the older. But Isaac liked Esau better and in rebellion was trying to pass that, that blessing on through Esau. He was sinful there. Esau was sinful in that he had already sold the birthright and he tried to play along with his father's plan. Jacob and Rebekah, it ain't hard to see how they were sinful. They deceived this scheme with putting on hair and making him smell certain ways. In Genesis chapter 27 is all that I'm paraphrasing right now. But what we can see throughout all of this is that no man, no sinner can thwart God's plan. He will bring it to pass. Not only will he bring it to pass despite of sinners... But God brings his plan to pass through sinners. And we see that over and over and over and over in scripture. And that ought to encourage us today because every single one of us is painfully aware of our own deficiencies. And every single one of us is really good at going like, how could God use someone like me who's done X, Y, Z? And when you read through scripture, you go, oh, oh, yikes. He lied and said that that wasn't his wife and oh, he gave his daughter to this and, and oh, he, he committed adultery. You know, he had that dude murdered to cover up his, and God used them in his plans and purposes. Now there were consequences for their actions, consequences for their sins. But I want to bring this to light today because this has been a message that's really like, oh man, confronting our sin, confronting our flesh, calling us to be filled with the Spirit, calling us to be recharging and feeding our spirits through the Word of God and through prayer. But I also want to minister the grace of God. In that, if Galatians 5, where it's talking about all the fruit of the flesh and you felt condemned, the Holy Spirit of God would rather convict than condemn. Which is not a, you terrible person, how could you? It is a Come here and receive grace and forgiveness and mercy in the time of need. Jesus Christ paid for your forgiveness of sins to whereby those who are in that list of being led by the flesh can deny themselves and be crucified and be filled with the Spirit and walk by the Spirit rather than the flesh. There is not a person in this room or online who's hearing me that is too far where God can't forgive what you have done and redeem it and use you for his purposes from now on. It's as simple as confessing and acknowledging and repenting of that sin and saying, Lord, forgive me, fill me, change me, use me. And to the sincere heart who says and prays those things, God delightedly answers. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you God, I thank you for your spirit that we don't have to be like Esau. We don't have to be like Jacob in all these times where people gave in to the weakness of their flesh. God, I ask that you would fill all of us with your spirit, that you would refill and stir up what you've done in us. If there's anyone here who today has not been saved and has not been transformed by your spirit, God, I ask today that you would open their eyes to see their need for Jesus. But also to see the infinite value and worth and desirability of Jesus. That you would bring them to authentic repentance, turning from sin, being willing to humble themselves and acknowledge that I am messed up and I need a Savior. And that God, you would graciously fill them with your Spirit, transforming them, changing them into new creations that hunger and thirst for righteousness that long for holiness, that hate the weakness of the flesh, hate the temptations of sin, and desire to please you and serve you all the days of their life. God, let that be true of all of us. In Jesus' name, amen.